Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. So uh, glad you're here today. Uh, I read this week a story uh, from a guy named Dallas Willard who wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And the story is about his earliest years. He, he talks about how as a child he grew up in an area of southern Missouri. This would have been in the very early 20th century where um, electricity was available only in the form of lightning. <laughs> and they had plenty of lightning to spare. But uh, in his senior year of high school, he writes that the Rural Electrification Administration extended its electrical lines into the area where he lived. And electrical power became av- available to the households and, and the farms there. And when those lines came by his family's farm, uh, a very different way of living presented itself to the Willard household, their relationships to very fundamental aspects of life, things like daylight and dark, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food, preserving food, all those things could then be vastly changed for the better. But Willard makes the point that his family had to, in a sense, believe that the electricity had arrived. And based upon their belief that electricity had to arrive, they then had to take the practical steps required to rely on it. Uh, He says it this way, the kingdom of electricity was at hand in my house. And the decision was upon us, were we going to recognize the presence of electricity or not? And, And It's a little bit of a crude illustration in some respects, but I do think it helps us understand Jesus's basic message here in these verses and really throughout his earthly ministry. 
Jesus' basic message was that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has arrived in him. That's what these verses are about, and that's our topic for the next couple of minutes together this morning. We've been working our way through Matthew, and we've seen that Jesus has now finished preparing for his public ministry. He was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River at the end of chapter 3. He heard God's benediction over him. You are my beloved son. I am very, very happy with you. And then last week we saw that Jesus was continuing to be prepared for his work of ministry by being tempted in that one-on-one battle against the devil in the desert. He succeeded and proved that he really is who God says he was, the son of God. And now Matthew, in writing about the life and works of this man, Jesus, records that Jesus travels to Galilee, which is the district where he was raised, and he goes to a little fishing village right off the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. You see it there in verse 13. Capernaum was, at the time, a town of about 10,000 people, and it's the place that Jesus makes his home base, so to speak, for most of his three-year ministry. And so here we see Jesus beginning as a public figure to do the work that he believes God had called him to. And the first thing he talks about, the first thing he declares is that everything has changed because the kingdom of God has come. That idea of the kingdom, again, is the main idea of this passage Uh, he defines his ministry, Jesus, as the coming of the kingdom. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's exactly what John the Baptist had said just a couple of weeks ago when we looked at John the Baptist. That phrase, the kingdom of heaven, it's one that Jesus uses over 150 times in the gospel of Matthew alone. It's his main preaching theme. And today I want to show you how Jesus brought the kingdom then, and how the kingdom continues to come now. But before we get into that, let me just briefly try to help you understand what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is. When we hear that word kingdom, we tend to think of, uh, think of it spatially. We think of geography, we think of land, we think of borders, but that's not really the best way to understand the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is, it's the reign of God. It is the rule of God, which in the person and work of Jesus breaks into our world. The kingdom of God, it's a new way of living more than it is a piece of geography on a map. I I heard a story this week from a man who spent years serving as a missionary in Laos. And here's what he said. He said that before the colonialists imposed national boundaries in that part of the world, the kings of Laos and Vietnam reached an agreement on how they were going to tax the border areas. And here's what they said. They said, the people living in the border areas who eat short grain rice 
and who build their houses on stilts and who decorate their houses with Indian-style serpents, those people were considered Laotians. But on the other hand, those who ate long grain rice and built their houses on the ground and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons, they were considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's home was not what determined in that instant his or her nationality. Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose cultural values he or she exhibited. And so it is with us. So it is with the kingdom of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, we live in the world, but we are a part of God's kingdom because we live according to his kingdom's standards and values. So that's what the kingdom of of God is. It's the reign and rule of God breaking in through Jesus. So how does Jesus bring it? Let me show you three ways from these verses, okay? The first way we see Jesus brings the kingdom is through preaching. The kingdom comes through his words, his teaching and preaching. Look, Look at what Matthew writes with me. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, verse 23, Matthew tells us, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. So Jesus came and gave people news. He gave people a message. Jesus made... A royal declaration. He spoke as one who had great authority. We see that everywhere in the Gospels when people listen to Jesus' teaching. And that fundamentally is what preaching is. Preaching is the authoritative declaration of news about what God has done. And it is a call for people to respond to God's activity in and through Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus call people to do in response to his arrival, in response to the kingdom of God breaking into our world? He says it, repent. It's the same message John the Baptist gave. To repent is to turn around. To repent is to leave your old path. It's to stop your old ways and to move towards God. And notice carefully, this is really critical for you to understand the way of Jesus and the message of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, repent so that the kingdom of God will come. He says, repent because the kingdom of God has come. Do you catch the difference there? The sequence in Jesus' preaching is not that human action, repentance, spurs God's action. Rather, the sequence is that God's action in bringing the kingdom through Jesus spurs our action. And every single one of us are being told today through Matthew's gospel by God's spirit that God has broken in to our dark world and he has brought in reality an entirely different mode of existence, a way of grace, a way of peace, a way of righteousness. And we are all summoned into this new way 
And the means by which we enter the doorway is repentance. So Jesus says, repent. He preaches this message about how we are to respond to his coming. And this is, again, I think so interesting. It's Jesus's word, his message, his preaching, his communication itself that brings his kingdom. Jesus's word carries with it authority and power. Jesus's word does something. It works. When he releases that word, repent off of his lips. The word of Jesus carries with it the power to do what it asks, the power to turn us around. If you're familiar with the Bible, then you might think about the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. The way the scriptures tell us God made the world is by speaking. He said, let there be light and poof, there was light. The word of God in creation has a performative power to it. It is able to accomplish in the actual speaking that which it intends. Jesus' word is the same. We see here it is performative. Even human words, even our words are somewhat like this, at least some of the time. And I think we can grasp it. For example, when you say the words, uh, I'm sorry, when you tell someone, I'm sorry, and, and when the one who hears those words receives them with trust, those words do something. They affect some level of change. It's similar, isn't it, with the phrase, I love you. Those words have power. When you tell someone, I love you, and it's spoken with honesty and conviction, and it's, in a sense, received in faith, it does something to us as well. Jesus' word has power. Jesus' word brings the kingdom. His preaching ushers in this new way of God's rule. That's still true right now. Do you know that? Jesus's Words change people. Jesus' word changes things. It performs and reforms and transforms and conforms whatever it touches. That's why the fundamental ministry of our church is to give people the word of Jesus. That's why we preach and teach the Bible, which is the place where we encounter Jesus' effective word. Foundational to the mission of Christ Church is to continue to do in Jesus' power what Jesus does here. Proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. That's what our main value is. It's what our main mission is. And interestingly enough, the way the kingdom comes through Jesus' word is itself an illustration of the power of the gospel. Listen, Jesus' word has the power to call you out of death into life. When you hear and when you believe the word of the kingdom, that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, that Jesus died for you, that he rose from the grave, that he's conquered the power of death for you, that in itself affects a radical transformation in your heart and in your life. Jesus' word has the power to forgive your deepest and darkest actions, 
Jesus' word has the power to give you a new standing before a holy God. When you hear that word, the word of life, it saves you. So we want to give people, we want to give ourselves the word of God. The kingdom comes through the preaching, the word of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the kingdom comes through Jesus' gathering. Gathering. Jesus is not a solo worker. Uh, He gathers to himself a community. And right away, isn't that interesting? Look at the first substantial story Matthew gives us after Jesus begins his preaching ministry. Verses 18 through 22 tell us that he calls four men to follow him, to journey with him. He invites Simon Peter and Andrew, one set of brothers, and another set of brothers, James and John, into his mission. And in fact, this is an immediate example of the point I just made, the performative power of Jesus' word. Isn't it fascinating how direct Jesus' call is? How forceful it must have been. How abrupt this story comes across. Look with me, verse 19. He's just walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees these two guys and he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And again, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And guess what? Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Why these guys? I mean, of all the people that Jesus must have come across as he's walking by the lake that day, why did he call these men? There's absolutely no hint whatsoever that Jesus picks them for any particular reason. In fact, it seems that Matthew is going out of his way here to say, that there's nothing in James or John or Simon or Andrew, no no discernible quality at all that would draw Jesus to call them. It is not the attractiveness or the charisma of these men that makes Jesus call them. It is the call of Jesus that makes them follow. I always always envision this, and and I've always found it sort of funny. Uh, Zebedee. (laughs) Imagine Zebedee left there on the dock or left there in the boat holding the net. Old man Zebedee, hoping his young, strapping, handsome sons will help him out. And he says, can y'all help me get that? Where'd y'all go? They're gone. Jesus has called them. And poof, they vanish, literally leaving Zebedee holding the net. Jesus's words turn their life around, you see. Typically in ancient Jewish culture, students would seek out the rabbi that they wanted to study under. But Jesus is no ordinary rabbi, no ordinary teacher. Jesus gathers his followers to himself through his sovereign, gracious, powerful word. And he calls them into a mission. Verse 19, I will make you fishers of men. So the kingdom of heaven comes by Jesus gathering around himself a group of people, a community disciples who will assist him and go with him as he carries out his mission in the world. These four men right here enter into a lifetime of learning from Jesus. And so the kingdom comes now as we encounter 
this man Jesus, and as we deal with what he claims about himself, and, and as he invites us to leave behind our lives, to be willing to sever old ties and enter into his school and follow him as master. That's how the kingdom works. We meet Jesus and enter a lifetime of discipleship to him. That's who this room is full of. As I look around and see you, think of where you were when Jesus called you. This room is full of a catalog of stories, much like James and John and Andrew and Simon. You were going along your own merry way when you met this man, Jesus, and he interrupted your life and set you on an entirely new trajectory. We heard our room story this morning of Jesus calling her, changing her goals, setting her on a very different path that will bring the fulfillment that we all look for. Jesus calls us out of all kinds of stories and connects us to himself. And importantly, he also connects us to one another. The kingdom of God advances as we continue in our relationship of learning from Jesus and being led and taught by Jesus. He's not just interested in saving you, which of course he is interested in. He's also interested in having you with him in instructing you and giving you guidance and counsel and helping you and training you as you are together with him and his people. The kingdom comes through Jesus's preaching. The kingdom comes through Jesus's gathering. Last thing, the kingdom comes through Jesus's healing. From the beginning, which is right here, we see that Jesus's ministry in bringing the kingdom is one of both word, his preaching and teaching, and deed, action. In fact, these verses, verses 23, 24, and 25, are a summary of the next five chapters. Matthews 5 through 7 contain the greatest single bit of Jesus' preaching, his word ministry, the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew 8, 9, and 10 contains 10 different instances where Jesus miraculously heals someone or rescues someone or casts a demon out of someone. Look at how Matthew puts it. Verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. There's the word and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. There's the deed. And he becomes more and more well-known, and his ministry multiplies. Verse 24, they brought him all the sick, those afflicted, excuse me, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Have you ever visited the Statue of Liberty? I'm sure some of you have. I've been there on multiple occasions, and I wonder if you've ever seen what's engraved on the bronze plaque that's located on the pedestal of the statue. It's a poem, and the poem is called The New Colossus. And it ends like this. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Of course, that's symbolic of what 
America was intended to be, a land for immigrants to come and find freedom, to come and find a new life. But it also reminds me, at least, of who Jesus is here. One to whom you can bring the broken. Jesus is one to whom you can bring your own hurts and sorrows and sicknesses. The kingdom of God comes in the power of Jesus' word, and it comes in the power of Jesus' touch. This week, I read another story about a, a doctor. His name was Paul Brand, and he spent many years working as a physician, practicing medicine in India. And uh, he's actually one of the physicians who pioneered the modern treatment of leprosy. And one time he was meeting with a patient, uh, a leper, and he laid his hand on the patient's shoulder. And then through a translator, Dr. Brand uh, informed the man about the treatment that lay ahead. And to his surprise, the man began to shake with sobbing. And and Dr. Brand asked the translator, you know, it was a cross-cultural moment. So he asked the translator, have I done something wrong? Have I done something to, to offend this man? And the translator quizzed the patient. And the patient mumbled something. And then the translator reported back, no, doctor. He says he's crying because you put your hand around his shoulder. And until you came here, no one had touched him for years. Jesus cares about our spirits And he wants to give us new birth. But Jesus also cares deeply about our physical bodies, our lives, all of our wounds, all of our hurts, mental, psychological, emotional, physical. The kingdom of God coming in Jesus is holistic. It wants to transform everything, spirit and body, heaven and earth. So if the preaching of Jesus informs our mission as kingdom people, if we preach the word because it has the power of Jesus' word behind it, then the healing of Jesus also should inform our mission. We care for the hurting and the poor, and we seek to alleviate human suffering because the power of Jesus comes there too. Is your view of the work of God in the world broad enough to include that kind of ministry, to include that kind of mission? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called by God to partner with Jesus in his work of both sharing the word, but also in his work of seeking to care for the suffering, for the poor, for the homeless, for the hungry. That's why Clifton was up here not because I planned it this way, but that's why diaconal ministry is so important to the work of the church. And even more broadly, that's why you can be an agent of the kingdom by seeking to make this world a better place through your respective vocational callings, whatever they may be, whether you're a part of healing the sick or teaching and caring for children who come from broken places, which by the way is all children, Uh, by making our city safer, and so on and so on. Jesus cares about our lives and the world now. He longs to heal and relieve the oppression and poverty of this world now. And we who follow Jesus are in step with his heart when we work towards the same purposes in his name. So the message of the gospel 
should be accompanied with the deeds of the gospel. That's the pattern Jesus lays out for us here. And we'll see it all throughout Matthew. Ministry of word and ministry of deed. Care for spirit and care for body go hand in hand in Christ's kingdom. Is that the mission that you understand that you have been called to if you are one of Jesus's people and a member of his kingdom? The kingdom is drawn near in Jesus. God has spoken and invites us into his new way of life. Jesus brings it then and now through preaching, through gathering, and through healing and asks us to follow him by doing the same in his name. May it be so with us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray together.